Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. In a revival, there's different things that happen. There's repentance from sin. There's deeper commitment of people's lives to following and serving Christ. But there's always a return to the Scriptures. There's a return to a dependency on Scripture. There's a return to the love of God's Word. And, man, that's what we are praying for. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Hosea chapters 8 through 14. Now here's Pastor Brian. So here we are. We just pick right back up here in Hosea. So if you want to open your Bible to Hosea. All right, so let me remind you of Hosea and the context of the prophet, who he was. Remember, he's prophesying to the northern kingdom. So there were originally, of course, there was one kingdom of Israel under David and Saul before him. And then after the time of David, the nation split into two separate nations, really. There was the northern kingdom, which was known as Israel or Ephraim, and then there was the southern kingdom known as Judah. And as we studied, we've seen how the the northern kingdom just, it was bad from the get-go. First king, Jeroboam, God made these promises to him, but he didn't trust the Lord, and so he ended up making a golden calf and creating a like an alternative worship system to the one in Judah because he was afraid that the people would leave him and go down, back down to the temple. And so from Jeroboam all the way through to the very end of the history of the Northern Kingdom, all of the rulers were evil. They were all wicked, bad, bad kings. Judah was a little bit different. There were a handful of good kings in Judah. So Hosea is prophesying to this Northern Kingdom that is going to be judged and overtaken by the Assyrians and led into captivity in the year 721 BC. The southern kingdom of Judah will have a similar experience, not with the Assyrians, but the Babylonians, and that will happen in 586 BC. So 100 plus years will pass before Judah goes into captivity. So Hosea is prophesying about this coming judgment that is about to take place with the Northern Kingdom. And two verses that kind of sum up the gist of this prophecy. Chapter one, verse two, let me read it to you. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go marry a, a woman of harlotry and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And so Hosea married Gomer, daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. So as we saw previously, Hosea, he is becoming like a story. His life experience is illustrating God's relationship with the nation. 
So the nation that was the, uh, the wife of the Lord has become like a prostitute. That's the point. And then chapter three, verse one is similar. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she, has, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So these two verses, in a sense, they sum up the, the main message of Hosea, which is even though Israel has been perpetually unfaithful to God, God in the end will remain faithful to them because he loves them. And so he will chastise them He will punish them. He will let them go into captivity, but he will ultimately in the end restore them. And so we even saw in the first seven chapters, we even saw how the restoration is something yet future. It has not yet occurred. Israel going into captivity in Assyria never had a return to the land like Judah did when they went into the Babylonian captivity. So when Judah went into captivity, maybe you remember, it was a 70-year period that God would send them into exile. But at the end of the 70 years, he promised that he would bring them back into the land. There was never anything like that given for the Northern Kingdom. There was never a specific period of time, you're gonna go into captivity for this amount of time, then I'm gonna bring you back into the land. They were, in a sense, scattered permanently. And have been scattered since that time. And so the restoration that's going to come that was prophesied in a few of the passages that we looked at is a restoration that's yet in the future. So we're going to pick up in chapter eight. And as we did last time, and we looked at chapters one through three, we kind of read through each and every verse there because it was all sort of setting the stage. And then from four through seven, we more or less highlighted. And so as we pick up in chapter eight, that's what we're gonna do. We're just gonna highlight some things. You know, these are passages that we all personally should be reading on our own, you know, as we read through these books of the Bible. But as far as making our way through them, we want to just highlight some of the key statements. So the eighth chapter is... It's, it's the judgment. I mean, most of this is the judgment with these bright moments of hope that are interspersed between these long pronouncements of judgment. So here in chapter eight, Israel is to be judged. And so the key verse that I want to look at here is actually verse seven. And Notice what it says in verse seven. It says, they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. The stalk has no head, it will produce no flower. Were it to yield grain, foreigners would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now she is among the nations like something no one wants. So this is where things are headed with this judgment. But... This picture is, is so interesting. They have sown the wind 
and they will reap the whirlwind. Remember in Paul's letter to the Galatians, he spoke about this, this principle of sowing and reaping. And he said, whatever a person sows, they shall also reap. And he said, if you sow to the flesh, then of the flesh you will reap corruption. But if you sow to the spirit, of the spirit you will reap life. So everlasting life. So what we could say, taking that truth that Paul would later communicate, but the principle was there in the time of Hosea. So what have they done? They've essentially sown to the flesh. They have given themselves over. Now, sowing, most of you realize, this is a, this is a picture from agriculture. It's planting. So they're, they're planting seeds. And so there's the sowing is the planting. And then there's the reaping. That's the seeds they grow. And eventually there's the, the harvest moment that comes. And so for Israel, this is an interesting picture because they've sown the wind and they will now reap really a tornado. That's what a whirlwind is. And so, I mean, you can imagine the picture is one of chaos anyway. Sowing the wind is like a chaotic, it's a, it's a picture of a chaotic state. But then reaping the whirlwind, I mean, if, if we've ever seen like on the Weather Channel or something, you know, some of these insane tornadoes, these funnel clouds that just go through and absolutely devastate everything. That's what's happening to them. Because they've sown the wind, whatever a man sows, they will also reap. So now they're going to reap and they're going to reap this whirlwind, this destructive thing. And, you know, Israel is basically a picture for all nations. And through them, God is speaking to every nation, really. You know, I was thinking about that passage the other day. Righteousness exalts a nation, and yet sin is a reproach to any people. And so, so that's, a, that's a principle. Now, God's word prophetically went often and most of the time to the nation of Israel, but we saw in Jeremiah, we saw in some of the other prophets that, that God oftentimes sends his message out beyond the land of Israel. He's speaking to, of course, the Babylonians. He spoke to the Assyrians. He spoke to the Syrians. He spoke to the Egyptians. And that just reminds us that God is the God of all nations. And even though he doesn't have a covenant relationship with the other nations like he did with Israel, he still has a standard by which he expects people to live. And when they refuse to live that way, when they do what Israel did, they sow the wind, they too will reap the whirlwind. And I was thinking about how it's kind of like the history of, the history of Israel is almost like the history of every nation. Nations start out and they have, you know, oftentimes a, a humble beginning. They oftentimes have a standard of, you know, some sort of morality that, that's all connected all the way back to the law of God written in the heart. They hold forth virtue and things like that. And that's a lot of times how things begin. But then as time passes and as prosperity comes 
and people begin to self-indulge and through centuries sometimes it takes, finally a nation comes to a place where it's just so completely broken that it's beyond repair. And I think in, in some ways we're seeing that played out right here in our own life experience. We're certainly seeing it played out in Western culture and civilization. All of the prosperity, all of the wealth and all of the riches and all of the things that so many of the, the European and, and related nations have, have spent centuries accumulating and all, all of the wisdom and all of that. And, and as the nations have grown more prosperous, they've grown more self-dependent. You know, a few years ago, the European Union came together. It's kind of like a United States of Europe. And they wrote a constitution. And an interesting thing about the European Union constitution is that they intentionally did not make any reference to God or to the Christian faith. And the irony is that all of those nations uh, were at one time recognized as part of Christendom, which is this you know, way of describing sort of the, the nations that are culturally Christian. But, I mean, all you have to do is travel to Europe. You're, that's where the great cathedrals are. That's where the great universities are that are all named after you know, biblical ideas or named after Jesus or things like that. And, and yet in the European Union Constitution, zero reference to Christianity. Basically, they just said, that's a part of our history we don't even want to remember. It's a bad part of our history, so we're going to move ahead without any references to God. And, and we see those cultures just slowly but surely crumbling. And, of course, that is happening uh, not just across the pond in Europe. Uh, that is happening in all of the Western countries that have essentially said, we don't need God. We know what's best for ourselves. We can come up with our own uh, rules and our own understanding of how to live life. Uh, we reject any outside influence from any kind of a God. And so we see the decline. And the only sane things that remain are things that are actually tied back to our previous history that was connected to God in, in the cultural sense. At least there was acknowledgement of him and there was um, on the part of the founders and so forth, there was the idea that there was something that was truly virtuous. There, there was something that was uh, righteous. And so we want to, in some ways, try to conform to that. But that's all now being set aside. So all that to say, as we look at Israel, we see a picture of what happens to any people who forsake God, any people who renounce God, any people who choose to live independent of God, which is, you know, people say that, I don't need God, I, I live independent of God, which in reality, nobody lives independent of God because we couldn't exist for a millisecond 
apart from God, right? Remember what, remember that word that Daniel gave to Belshazzar. Belshazzar was the, he was the king in charge of Babylon at the time and the judgment's gonna come, remember that? And the handwriting comes upon the wall, meeny, meeny, tekel, yufarsin, and weighed in the balance, found wanting, your, your kingdom is numbered. And what does Daniel say to Belshazzar? He says, the God in whose very hand your breath is, you have failed to glorify. So all the blasphemers, all of those who renounce God or any concept of God, they only have the ability to do it because God gives them breath. So that's the truth of the matter. So again, with Israel, they thought that they knew better. And that's what led to their ultimate demise. Now, in verse 12, look at what God says. He says, I wrote for them the many things of my law, but they regarded them as something foreign. God gave them his word and they regarded it as something foreign. God's given us his word. God's given his word to the church. And as long as we hold fast to the word, as long as we do that personally, as long as we do that collectively, as long as the church universally does that, there's the promise of blessing. There's the promise of of spiritual prosperity. But the moment we set that aside and start to think that we we don't really need God's word, or we can't really trust that this is God's word. That, that's the beginning of the end for the church. And this is happening, and it's been happening for a long time, but it's happening across, across the board today. Many people today rejecting the word of God. I am so passionate about seeing a revival of love for the word of God. You know, we were, we were talking about that today. Um, we were talking about just the, the idea. Thinking about the past, you know, my history here goes back a long time. And so I remember the time when everybody had their Bible. Everybody was lined up to get into church. Everybody wanted to, to hear the word of God taught. And it was a beautiful, beautiful time. And as, as wonderful as that was, that is clearly not happening today. And it's not just here that it's not happening. It's not happening in many, many places where it was happening at one time. And my prayer, our prayer is that it would happen again. But we recognize too that it will not look exactly the same as it looked in the past. It will be different, but it will be the same. It will be love for God's word and a hunger for it and a desire to gather together and to learn it and to share it. And you know, that's what happens when what we call a revival comes. In, in a revival, there's always, I mean, there, there's different things that happen. There's repentance from sin. There's deeper commitment of people's lives to following and serving Christ. But there's always a return to the scriptures. There's a return to a dependency on scripture. There's a return to the love 
of God's word. And man, that's what we are praying for. That's what we long to see. And I personally believe that in God's grace, we're gonna see it. He's gonna do it for us. So he then goes on and he says, uh, but I want you to see this connection. So they set aside the word of God. And then it says, it says, they will return to Egypt. Israel has forgotten their maker. They will return to Egypt. What did, what did Egypt symbolize? Egypt symbolized bondage. That's what they were in in Egypt. They were, they were bound in slavery. And this is where they were going to go back to. You know, it's amazing to think when you go back and you read Exodus and you read the whole story of the deliverance from Egypt, the wandering in the wilderness, you read Joshua and the entrance into the land. And then to, to think like that Israel would actually go back to Egypt. But that's what they did. They went back to Egypt. The place that God delivered them from, the place that God said, never go back there again. That's exactly where they ended up. And they ended up there because Israel forgot their maker. You can't go anywhere except back into bondage if you walk away from the Lord. Uh, there, there's, there's nothing good that can ever come from that. You know, understand that. I mean, I know we all know that theoretically, but man, we really have got to get that into our hearts and minds. I cannot believe the number of people today that are walking away from the Lord and they're even saying like, oh gosh, I feel so free now. I'm freed up from all that, that bondage that I was in. You know, the church, they were putting all these trips on me and you know, the Bible was limiting my freedom and my understanding of who I am. And, and now that I've set the Bible aside, man, I just feel so free. Wow, talk about deception. That's major deception. And for the moment, it might be true though. They might feel really free, but it won't be long before it's obvious to everyone that they are all bound up in chains of sin because that's the only place you can go. You go away from God and his word, you go back to Egypt. That's that's the only place that road leads. So the ninth chapter is, again, just a repetition regarding the, the punishment that will come upon Israel. And the ninth chapter flows right into the 10th chapter. And so we're just gonna jump here to verse 12 of chapter 10. And here is the Lord still pleading with the people. You know, it's amazing how God continues to, to plead with people, how he continues to patiently wait for us, how he continues to send us messages, basically, come home, come back. month of December, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled, Is Christmas Unbelievable? Four Questions Everyone Should Ask About the World's Most Famous Story by Rebecca McLaughlin. 
It's easy for the holiday season to draw our attention to shopping, parties, programs, and events, while the Christmas story is relegated to the statue of a myth or fairy tale for children. But is the Christmas story actually grounded in history? Well, in her book, Is Christmas Unbelievable? Four Questions Everyone Should Ask About the World's Most Famous Story, Rebecca McLaughlin tackles four basic questions surrounding Christmas. She deals with the questions surrounding if Jesus was a historical figure, if we can take seriously the historical accounts of the gospel, and if the virgin birth can actually be believed, and why it all matters. If you know a person who is skeptical that the Christmas story is true, or if you are a skeptic yourself, we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com to order Is Christmas Unbelievable? Four Questions Everyone Should Ask About the World's Most Famous Story by Rebecca McLaughlin. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Hosea. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.